What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means they'll only source clean electricity on every grid where they operate, all day, every day. Getting there will require a significant shift in how we buy and sell clean energy. In fact, it's already beginning. So what we did with Google was a first of its kind. Leo Moreno is the president of AES Clean Energy, one of the top developers of renewable energy projects in the world. Through this process, we proved that it was possible. So through a combination of hydro, wind, solar, and energy storage, we found the optimal portfolio that we know can guarantee 24-7 carbon-free energy in 90% of the hours of the year. Later in the show, we'll hear how AES and Google partnered on an innovative new product that allows for round-the-clock carbon-free energy. Stay tuned. To learn more, go to g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. The clean energy industry is now an extremely powerful force. Each year, more investment goes into wind, solar, and hydro than into fossil fuels. And in the next five years, renewables are forecast to make up 95% of new power plant capacity around the world. But not that long ago, even the smartest people in energy dismissed renewables as trivial. I was not passionate about renewable energy when I crossed the transom into renewable energy, which was 1998. In fact, I was quite skeptical. This is Andy Karsner. It may not sound like it, but in the mid-2000s, he oversaw billions of dollars in government clean energy spending during a breakout moment for the industry. You may have heard of him in the news recently. He was just voted onto ExxonMobil's board by activist shareholders as a way to hold the oil giant accountable on climate change. In 2005, Andy was chosen by President George W. Bush to lead the Department of Energy's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. That meant directing R&D and deployment efforts across wind, solar, fuel cells, biofuels, and other up-and-coming technologies. But back in the 90s, Andy was building lots of gas and diesel power plants. He didn't think much of wind and solar. Few developers did. And there was a good reason to be skeptical because almost nothing was commercial and anything that was commercial was deeply subsidized and completely 100% reliant on the government. And any of that was of such small and insignificant scale that a conventional power developer would look at that and go, really? You want me to do this small stuff when I'm used to doing this big stuff? But then he got an offer he couldn't refuse, a chance to lead a company called Enercorp that was riding the early growth of Europe's wind market. Andy wasn't motivated by the environmental cause for wind. Rather, he loved the idea of scaling a nascent industry, especially making it as big as thermal power plants that dominated the electric grid. And so he moved to London to give it a shot. So it wasn't, was it green? It wasn't, uh, is it saving emissions? In 1998, I wasn't really thinking about that that much. That was a learning journey. And so I bought into the notion that we could supersize the wind industry. And that got me excited of taking a new technology and looking at it as a first mover. That detour defined the rest of Andy's career. It quickly became clear that wind had the potential to scale. Every project got bigger. Development improved radically. And in the early 2000s, wind was looking a lot like traditional thermal power generation. 
when I went into the attributes of the things that I was building, and as I was supersizing them, I was going, holy smoke, this is a lot of non-polluting energy. Over the last two decades, Andy Karsner has become a highly influential clean energy entrepreneur, investor, and strategist. He oversaw billions of dollars in wind projects and then billions more in government investment to kickstart the U.S. wind and solar boom. Later, he invested in companies like Tesla, Nest, and Recurrent. Today, he's the senior strategist at X, the innovation lab run by Google's parent company, Alphabet. He also co-founded a nonprofit investment group now called Elemental Accelerator that has invested $43 million into climate tech startups. I sat down with Andy at the 2021 MIT Energy Conference earlier this year, just after the big Texas blackouts. We talked about his early days in renewables, the massive tech and market changes he oversaw in government, and the new challenges for entrepreneurs in today's maturing industry. We started with his multicultural background, which guided his career traveling the world, building power plants. Your family home was multilingual, multicultural. Your mom is Moroccan and spoke seven languages fluently. Your dad is the son of first-generation immigrants from Ukraine and Lithuania. What was your childhood like and what values did you learn from your parents? Ooh, my childhood like. Boy, that's one for a psychotherapist. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, we had a big family. We had a family of six. We operated as a team. We um, uh, moved from Air Force Base to Air Force Base and uh, were a bit nomadic and, uh, as you said, multicultural. So we were always an oddity everywhere we went on the plains of North Dakota, the desert of California, or the northern uh, plains of Texas, uh, to have sort of a Jewish Moroccan family that appreciated uh, tagine and tacos and T-bone was kind of a, rare, uh, a, a weird combo. You know, my mother had an expression, which I teach my children, that there's no such thing as a stranger. There's only the friends you haven't met yet. So the value of every human being was a very big value. And and overall, I'd say um, more importantly now than ever, especially living in Silicon Valley, is um, they taught us that uh, wealth wasn't defined by the size of our wallets, but by uh, the richness of the people in our lives. One of the things that I like most about you is that your educational path did not follow that which people might expect of a future assistant secretary of energy. Yeah. I also had a pretty untraditional educational path. Tell us about yours. What did you study and and what did you learn that may be unique to others who who did take that traditional path? Yeah. So the first most important lesson for me was that a curious an insatiable, curious mind that enjoys lifelong learning and appreciates that you don't stop growing as long as you continue learning uh, means that you, you know, you have fusion energy on the inside, that your, your path isn't the pedigree processing, you know, pathway norms that is meant to, you know, clean your uh, record inside of some sort of Ivy institution to make who you are, but that it's internal and that you generate who you are. And so for me, that was a lot of wanderlust. That was a lot of backpacking. I mean, I, uh, uh, there were intervals in my life where I took a year off or two years off to roam around South America and Antarctica and South Georgia and, you know, go see the world. Uh, you know, it's sort of the George Bernard Shaw thing. The only time, you know, I wasn't learning was while I was in class. You know, that, <laughs> the, that's not completely true. I've loved yeah. many of my professors and, and gotten on with them. But by far, most of my learnings have been an, an insatiable drive to be amongst people in far-flung places and to relate to their history and, and their cultures and things that have uh, brought us together as a species. Mm, which relates very closely to what you did study. I believe uh, you attended Rice University where you studied 
political and religious studies. And then following Rice, you went on to study international finance at the University of Hong Kong and then earned a master's in comparative Asian studies. And so it sounds like people are at the core of what you have found to be most interesting, or at least what you've chosen to study. Yeah. I mean, I, I was found myself in Pakistan in the mid-90s building the first private power plants in, in Karachi, which was a war zone, which was the only reason a 20-something-year-old kid <laughs> could be in Pakistan, you know, because no smart person with a frontal lobe development would be there. But but I enjoyed it because I liked touring around Gandhara land and climbing K2 and, and going up into the Swat Valley and all these places that are now occupied by uh, Al-Qaeda. I enjoyed it so much because um, uh, I was meeting people and people say, well, are you an engineer? And no, you know, well, you're building a power plant. You must be an investment banker. No. You know, well, what did you study? I studied religious studies. They're like, well, why? And it's like, well, there's no investment bankers or engineers who can get a Pashtun and a Sikh and a Sundi and a Parsis around a table to have a multicultural negotiation for a productive outcome. So, you know, in the spirit of eclectic, uh, ecumenical American social alchemy, um, you know, religious, as it turns out, knowing your religious, deepest, most passionate beliefs and trying to reconcile them is quite fundamental to erecting a power station. Definitely want to hear more about that in a second. I know prior to that, you started your career in energy in 1988, first at a small independent Texas power developer, and then later a large international developer based in Hong Kong. While those two were very different experiences, I'm curious if you were to summarize one lesson from your early career in energy, what would it be? It would be never be intimidated by size or reputation, it, that it always comes down to people, that uh, uh, people and point of contact make the difference. And, uh, you know, I always tell people when they talk about socialist medicine or private medicine and healthcare, it always comes down to the nurse in the room mm. and her heart and her acumen and her capability, whatever the master system is. And it's the same like that. People get, you know, in awe of a big company. And now Tesla, which was a small company, when, when I met Tesla, is now a big company. And people go, oh, my God, that's a big brand. It's a big company. And, and so was GE. And so was Eastman Kodak. And so was Exxon at one time. But all these things change and morph on the back of people. So that Margaret Mead principle that it only takes a few people to change the world, it's all that ever has, you know, mm -hmm. I, I definitely fortified that as an early uh, developer. Coming up, Andy takes a chance on wind and realizes he's at the start of something big, but he needs to convince others in the industry to think bigger too. First, a word about our partners who bring you this show. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. Google was buying lots of renewable energy before it was big business, and now they're working with partners to transform electric grids at scale. So what Google is doing is really uh, setting a standard in the market on, on what can be done. This is Leo Moreno, the president of AES Clean Energy. AES is a power company that orchestrates massive solar, wind, and battery projects. Google went to AES with a question. Could they ensure around-the-clock carbon-free energy for its data centers in Virginia? Leo and his team spent a year crunching data and planning new renewables and storage projects that could deliver electricity exactly when Google needs it. So what we did is run thousands and thousands of simulations with more than 60 projects to find the perfect portfolio of 10 projects that would be able to guarantee this. So in this case, you end up not just adding projects to the grid, but you end up adding projects or adding volume in the hours that the grid needs it. So it's a fully optimized, customized product that, that didn't exist before. The result? Zero carbon energy on an hourly basis 90% of the time. 
It's a big leap towards Google's ambitions of getting to zero carbon energy 100% of the time. And now AES and Google have created a roadmap for other companies and grids to operate on carbon-free energy all day, every day. So now we're ready to provide this to any customer in the market. I think in the beginning of this, no one thought that you could get to 90%. So it's very exciting that we're here now, but we think that this can be the first of many, many of these types of transactions in the market. This is the next frontier of decarbonization, harnessing new technologies, innovations, and partnerships to create the energy systems of the future in real time. Which is what we all want, right? All stakeholders want to decarbonize everything. They don't want to decarbonize just some parts of the grid. If you want to get inspired by the challenge or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, go to g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is building connected power plants of the future by integrating new solar technologies and advanced control software. NextTracker's tracking systems are future-proof, built to withstand the worst possible conditions. These trackers can withstand any terrain. NextTracker also has a control system called NX Navigator that allows power plant operators to precisely track every parameter of a solar project in real time, schedule maintenance, and command trackers during extreme weather events. This raises plant efficiency and bankability. To hear the entrepreneurial journey of NextTracker CEO Dan Sugar, go back and listen to the third episode in our back catalog. And if you want to learn more about how NextTracker is advancing the connected power plant of the future across five continents, go to nexttracker.com. After a decade of building fossil fuel power plants around the world, Andy got pulled into the wind business and founded Enercorp in 1999. The company financed and developed wind farms in Europe, North America, Asia, and the Middle East. As Andy got deeper into wind, he realized it had the potential to rival any other source of energy. But the industry was thinking small. So the crazy breakthrough that I had, was, um, uh, which is just ridiculous now in retrospect, was that I went to all the technologists who were consumed with the BETS curve and the output efficiency and, and getting their subsidies from Denmark and California. And I said, what if we put these where it's really windy? What if we actually found where it's really windy and we got all that free fuel and we just made a unbelievable amounts of them? And they were like, that'll never happen. All the technologists were like, that can't happen. We've gotta, we're gonna get our subsidy. We're gonna finish the BETS curve, blah, blah, blah. So, and there was no wind measurements in those days. There was no, there was no wind regimes. There was no, so it was such a preposterous idea that the biggest wind, my partners, Vestas, the biggest wind company in the world, thought it was nutty, you know, to think in, in terms of 200 megawatt wind farms, 400 megawatt wind farms. And so I decided, you know what, based again on this religious studies and my wanderlust, I decided where people name the wind, it's going to be really windy. So I need to study the indigenous names for the winds, you know, the Chinook winds and the Mistral winds. And where I can find that, I can measure it, we can manage it, we can harness it, and we can sell it to bankers. So that was sort of the basis of Intercore was a supersizing wind company. That was really what it was meant to be. And then my lesson came in that in terms of all the beneficence that was being created. As a CEO, I'm curious, everyone we've had on What It Takes, who who is a founder, has started and led a company, they have come within months, weeks, days, sometimes hours of shutting shutting their doors, myself included. Oh, yeah. Uh, with, with the entirety of the seven years that you were leading Enercorp, did you ever think it might fail and how close did you ever come to failure? 
multiple times and almost every day until I cashed out. You know, uh, you know, I'm definitely from the Andy Grove school of only the paranoid survive. No, no. I mean, I started with the sleeping on the couch and then I squatted in a corner office in a building that Mick Jagger owned on Wellington Avenue in London. It was just always a struggle because everything was new. There was no path. It wasn't a venture sort of situation. Mm-hmm. It was, I characterize it as, you know, like Magellan's crew, like eating shoe leather to get around the world kind of thing. And then playing chicken with my much larger partners, you know, with Vestas and, and uh, RES out of England, McAlpine Engineering, who I ultimately sold it to. You know, I had to play chicken, you know, when they thought you were too small and, and were going to buy you out. And I'd be like, you can't buy me out. And with swagger, I'd leave the table negotiating for two or three weeks and do you like, please, God, let him come back to the table. Please let him come back to the table. Please, I've got to eat, <laughs> you know, and uh, eventually it did and it all worked out. But um, yeah, no, the sweat was always there. So fast forward to 2005, George W. Bush nominates you to be the ninth Assistant Secretary of Energy to lead EERE, where you were unanimously confirmed by the Senate. You were not uh, nominated amidst the war on terror, the highest gas prices we had ever seen. Despite those challenges, under your leadership, you grew the budget from a billion dollars when you joined to two billion when you left. What was it like leading EERE at the time? How did it shape your view on government and the role of government? Well, it was definitely a don't waste a crisis, uh, to quote Rahm Emanuel type of situation. And it was a, uh, you know, I had a mixed blessing that my father had been in the military for three decades and then went on to work for the government. So I had a built-in advisor, but I actually had no experience working in government and the sort of, you know, archaic management practices and the very hierarchical culture, you know, et cetera. I was very lucky that I worked for one of the greatest uh, venture capitalist, polymathic renaissance uh, men who you'd never hear of because of his humility and a guy named Sam Bodman, who actually was a grad and a professor and a regent or a trustee at MIT. So he gave me broad permission for my little secret plan of having uh, the government uh, sprinkle a little bit of goodness, verification, validation of different technologies that had been accreting dust in our national laboratories and set up a a cross-fertilization of DNA with Silicon Valley, with Boston, with Austin, with risk takers. And so people either credit or blame me for clean tech one. I like to think it's credit in retrospect. It certainly didn't feel that way most of the last decade. You know, I remember debating with John Doerr when I first went to Silicon Valley, whether we should call it green tech or clean tech and what was most passable and all of this. And and I think that uh, it was, so it was exciting. It was exciting because I had broad license to problem solve very acute problems in the middle of a war. And I spent my first day and I took my staff, uh, you know, the civil servants, um, uh, I saw who would come with me. And I said, we're going to go to Walter Reed Hospital and we're going to go to see Admiral Mahoney at NOAA, who's in charge of, of the climate, uh, what we call the, the the blue group or the blue team. And, and, um, we, um, and so we had those two visits on climate and on security on the first day. And, and it made that office and the Department of Energy a real tip of the spear focal point for problem solving. So much so that in the end, we ended up assuming the leadership position for climate negotiations that got us back into uh, uh, the global, uh, you know, after a 10-year hiatus from Kyoto, I was a principal that led the negotiations in Bali for um, for the Bali Roadmap, which was the precursor to Copenhagen and then Paris. So, so, the, so they were really go-go days at DOE, and it was because of Sam's open license and embrace of our strategy to 
activate private sector risk takers, stimulate entrepreneurs and campuses, and invite the rest of the nation into a revolution that had been largely sequestered behind the walls of our national labs. Andy left his mark on the government, but he didn't stop there. After he left the Department of Energy in 2008, he became a venture investor at Vantage Point Capital Partners, making bets on companies like Tesla and Nest. And then he turned his focus to helping other entrepreneurs and investors scale the next generation of climate tech companies. Um, in 2013, you joined X, which is Alphabet's moonshot factory, Alphabet being the parent company of Google, as a senior strategist. And you also joined Emerson Collective as a member of the executive team, during which time you co-founded Elemental Accelerator. Now you serve as chairman at Elemental Labs, senior strategist at X, while also being on the board of a bunch of places, including the MIT Media Lab. Given all you've done, what do you see as your role in the ecosystem today? My role in the ecosystem is to adapt myself from being a Luke Skywalker into Yoda and to be <laughs> the best Yoda I can be. I've lost my own personal Yoda, uh, George Schultz, uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, George was the one who literally uh, took me in with all my brashness and, uh, and taught me how to uh, stack the rocks and lift the uh, X-wing fighter out of the swamps. And I need to pay that forward with excellence and with more impact. And so it's generous to say that I co-founded uh, Elemental Accelerator with, uh, with Dawn. I tend to give all the credits to, to the Dawn and Emily's and, and all, the, all the people that are doing the heavy lifting and are sweating and are, mm. are managing people day to day. And, and I have sort of a, a, an opportunity to help make their journeys uh, more frictionless and to and more connective and to accelerate them uh, because they innately have more escape velocity than I have, but I have more uh, tricks and roots and maps and connections to uh, hopefully foster uh, greater growth. To your point on sharing with others in the way that George Schultz shared with you, I know he was one of your greatest mentors and teachers. What is the kind of single greatest lesson that you learned from George? So many. I mean, for me, George was this guy who worked with Reagan and we took down the wall in the Cold War. This is when Republicans had some normalcy and so forth. George told me a story about Reagan getting back in the car after that monumental speech and, and questioning himself and saying, did that come out right? And he said, well, what do you mean? It was perfect and you marked it up. And, and he said, I, I said, tear down this wall and I meant to say this wall will come down. And, and he said, well, you know, I think the other is the right. And he, and he said, but, but, he, but Schultz said he always preferred that latter because Reagan had this uninhibited, unrelenting insistence on the outcome of goodness and right. And, and the assertion that the wall will come down as opposed to challenging somebody else to bring it down, he said, was more Reagan. And he said, and, and he said, that's, he said, that's where we have to be. You've got to have your true north and your calibration, and you've got to know that you will achieve the outcome. And that's one of my favorite uh, Schultz lessons, but there's so many. Mm. Throughout your life, you have been a founder, a venture capitalist, a government official, while also being a partner to your wife and a parent to your four daughters. What's it been like being all of those things at once? I guess you've got to ask me, because if you ask them, it'll be a different question. It'll be a different answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I want to know what you would say and then what they would say. <laughs> um, it's, been, it's been joyfully productive and earnestly ambitious 
And at times it begs cognitive dissonance. There were times where I would ask the president's leave and leave the White House and literally run home to my car to get home in time to, to read to, to my oldest daughter, Caroline, at night. And, and, and then there have been times where I've missed, you know, uh, significant um, family events that um, will always haunt me, that I don't get those moments back. So there's a degree of cognitive dissonance, but as I said, the, the public service ethos runs really, in fact, just the service ethos, just the, it runs really strong in my family. And, and I have always felt a compelling need to model that, even when I probably uh, didn't model the best um, Ozzy and Harriet, uh, you know, uh, situation at home or leave it to Beaver or whatever. <laughs> Would they have a similar answer? Yeah, I hope and think that they're proud of their dad. I don't ever ask that from them, and I don't ever try to sway their journey. You know, I, I have beautiful, unbelievable girls, as any dad would say. But but, um, and they're all on different journeys. They're all remarkably different, and and I, even with them now, I'm getting to be a much better Yoda than a um, than a Skywalker. Um, you know, of course, my youngest is raised by YouTube and TikTok. So, you know, she's, you know, she, I'm just a per, I'm just a peripheral uh, buyer of uh, hardware for her at this moment. So, <laughs> um, all four of your daughters have very cool middle names. Yeah. Could you tell us their middle names and then tell us? Are you hopeful for their future as it relates to climate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm hopeful for their future, and I'm hopeful that they contribute to the future that makes it more hopeful. Yeah, so Caroline's middle name is Hope, and she was born, she's a 9-11 baby. She literally, you know, Marie and I made the split decision to move to America went by coming to New York right when the towers came down. And we, you know, she was in Stockholm. I was in Casablanca. We met at Heathrow and came to New York when the flight plan was lifted and we got pregnant and and uh, so Caroline had to be named Hope, and then we thought, well, you know, the rest of our girls, you know, we didn't know how many we'd have, and we didn't know they'd all be girls, but but uh, yeah, Jenny was Faith, and Julia's Love, and and uh, Hannah is Joy, and um and so yeah, that's a, a useful reminder of family values. It'll be a useful crib sheet when they have these interviews down the road, and somebody says, what were your family values? <laughs> Hopefully, they say, here's my middle. That's my middle name. Mm. <laughs> they can literally say that. Yeah. I know, speaking of family, you've been dealing with a lot in Texas, caring for friends and family. And then it was just last week that nearly four and a half million Texans were left without power due to an unprecedented winter storm and temperatures that overwhelmed the state's uh, grid and grid usage. Most are back online now, but people are still dealing with the aftermath. The events of last week exposed an energy system that is not prepared for the climate crisis. And, and we've seen the deadly consequences that that lack of preparation has. You know, you've personally been working to just keep your own parents warm and safe over the past two weeks. Um, how are you doing with <clears throat> all of that? And then what is what needs to happen in Texas? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's, uh, uh, yeah, there's a certain, it's been a fragility. I tell people that growing up in Texas, if you don't like the weather, just, you know, wait a few minutes. And it's true, not even a few days after the coldest temperatures I've ever felt here. And I'm, I'm talking Antarctica cold, you know, negative 18 wind chill and, and so forth. The, you know, we were at 80 degrees, you know, 96 hours later. So you think about an 80 degree swing, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just unheard of, uh, even for Texas. But, but the, um, 
but I've been through hurricanes in Texas. I've been through, you know, three or four twisters touching down near our homes, unbelievable lightning storms and wind. And I've never been as horrified as losing the heat with my 90 year old father at home. I mean, that was absolutely a life and death, you know, filling the bathtubs and making sure the candles were, you know, the matches were nearby and the whole thing. So it, it brings to you how important our, in, our industry is. You know, you, it's, it's, you never notice it unless you don't have it. It's that old, um, you know, what you want is a cold beer and a warm shower and you only care if you don't have either. And so, of course, I've talked with a lot of great Texans like Pat Wood, who was one of the original design architects on the system here and, and uh, so much at FERC. And I think that um, it's the system itself is not as bad as those who are opponents of it would like to paint it. The implementation of the system, the management, the governance, the intelligent execution around the system was uh, poor and flawed and ill-prepared. That doesn't mean you chuck the system because Texas widely has had one of the best systems, right? And, and, and just look at the renewable energy numbers in Texas. Is, there's a reason why it's the number one most hospitable recipient state to large-scale gigawatts of renewable energy investment, right? That system affords it much easier than others. You know, the, the, the CREZ, the, the uh, large renewable energy transmission is bought up into this market-based system, et cetera. Other states, that, we should have that nationally. But that's the point, that electrons and Americans really shouldn't be insulated to such a degree by state and political jurisdictions and certainly not by ideological preferences. We really need to have ubiquitous, fungible, universal, equitable access to clean, affordable, secure energy. We have the technological means. We have the capital you know, available. Well, the only thing we haven't had is the sufficiency of leadership and vision, the type of stuff that brought us the Hoover Dam or Grand Coulee, which, you know, you can argue about in hindsight of like, you know, uh, we should take them down, this and that and the other. But in 1910, when we were building out the West, you know, this is grand vision. Our railroads were grand vision. The interstate highway system is grand vision. So staying with the balkanized, not interconnected three grids and pretending that we're in different countries is not a healthy way for Americans to be at a time that we should bind, be binding up the wounds of the nation and, and finding ways to become closer. But we need somebody to step up with the, on that. And I'm hopeful that uh, maybe some of the listeners today will. But we live in such a new era of self-doubt that it is alien and unfamiliar to me. And so, so I'm always looking for the builders, the people who don't let the rocks in the pathway uh, define their route, that they basically say, we're going to go over, or under, around, or through. Speaking of leadership, given the outcomes of the election, but also looking beyond that, beyond the next four years, beyond party, what does the future of energy and mobility look like? Oh, I think it looks great. I think it's going to be uh, uh, all those things I just said. It's going to be cleaner. It's going to be more affordable. Heck, it may be free. You know, it's going to be more secure, one hopes. That we may learn by hard examples, just as we did with this winter in Texas. We may learn it through a cyber attack as we just did with the Russians. You know, so I hope that we have more preemptive, inoculative forward planning 
But whether by design or by default, we are going to move into the future with an amount of innovation that overwhelms incumbency. And you consistently hear both the pundits and the doubters and the incumbents argue for why all of this is insignificant. You know, I had the great pleasure of having one of the first rides in the first Tesla, the, in the beta, okay? And everybody say, that's never going to happen, signing up for old Lotus cars with engine battery backpacks. Never happened. That's 14 years ago. You know, when I left office, there wasn't a single LED commercially available on a shelf. You wouldn't build a building today or a city light system without LED lighting. And it always begins with doubt and mockery and marginalization. And it always ends with Eastman Kodak with 80% market share going, gosh, I thought we could sell just one more 35 millimeter canister. What happened? And that's how this is going to evolve. I have nothing but faith in our innovation complex to overwhelm all the poor incumbent attributes that are holding us back. On that note, we are going to close with our high voltage round. So these are quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning like 10 second answers, starting with if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? I'd be an eagle uh, or, or a penguin, but, but I think I'd be an <laughs> eagle. Penguins are so fast and agile and collective and community, but eagles are, are, you know, we say you can't soar with eagles if you walk around with turkeys. I love the idea of soaring and and having a whole purview of the arc of the earth and seeing all the world's magnificence. And since I'm not an astronaut, I think an eagle is probably as close as I can get. <laughs> if you did choose penguin, there's been one other penguin on what it takes. And it was our very first guest, which was Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower. Okay. So you could, you could be company. penguins with him. <laughs> I love penguins. <laughs> if you were to start a new career tomorrow, if you had to, what would it be? I'd be a writer. Hmm. What would you write? I would write a book that's been in my head for a long time called Backpacker in the Boardroom. Mm. Oh, I like that. You should write that. I'd read it. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll sign uh, you up for a, a perk on a, for a book jacket. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, my parents, uh, my, my sensibility in the divine and, and uh, trying to keep myself humble in the face of far greater acts of creation. Like I said, poetic. Uh, when have you failed? Constantly. Uh, daily, I fail. But I believe in the blessings of a skin knee, and I believe in learning. I believe failure is the key to learning, and I'm rapacious about learning. So I, failure doesn't bother me. I, I, I view it as a gift. Mm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Fatherhood. I'm still learning. And uh, I don't think I'll stop learning to the day I die, but... Um, it's, you know, the Peace Corps used to have a great commercial, uh, it's the hardest job you'll ever love, and uh, it's that, and I'm still learning. Hmm. What's the best investment you've ever made? The best investment I've ever made commercially would probably be Nest. Personally, would be in um, falling in love and creating a family. When are you your best self? I am my best self when being productive and helping others and being alone and still in nature, in ecosystems that are larger than me and that I do not control. Hmm. What is your worst trait? My worst trait is, um, well, I got a lot of those too. <laughs> um, uh, I would say it's, a, um, it's an impatience 
that is uh, becoming less worse over time, but is still, um, uh, I am impulsively about um, um, time management. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? You know, this feels like a Miss America, you know, answer right up in the booth. <laughs> Don't worry, I, you're winning. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I'd say world peace is, uh, you know, certainly up there. But I, I, uh, I think, I think whatever language it is, I'd have everyone automatically know it, even if it was a second language for everyone. I think if I should change one thing about the world, everybody would be born with a access to a common language. I love that. That's. Really creative. Um, if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? I'd want it to be my mother, probably, who's passed, but yeah. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Uh, insufficient humility, excess hubris. If you really knew me, you would know? That I am deeply romantic. <laughs> Success is? The opportunity to know true love and to be loved by uh, family and community. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? It would be, it would be my belief that there's goodness in everyone. Last question. To build a successful company, what it takes is? Persistence. Andy, that concludes this recording of What It Takes. I am a huge fan of yours. I'm deeply grateful that you're willing to do this. And thank you for being in the world and doing everything you've done and everything you will do. So mutual. I'm so honored to be asked. And I'm so honored to have a chance to talk to my friends at MIT and and hope that somebody will whatever DM me or look me up so that when I come to MIT, they'll go, oh man, I heard your podcast with Emily and I want (laughs) to show you my super cool invention from the Island of Misfit Toys. Andy Karsner is managing partner of Emerson Collective, a senior strategist and space cowboy at X, and a newly elected activist board member of ExxonMobil. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes was produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>